everybody. You are listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm Jamin Brazil, your host. Our guest today is Doug Healy. He is the Senior Director of Consumer Insights at Gatorade at PepsiCo. PepsiCo was formed in 1965 with the merger of the Pepsi Cola Company and Frito-Lay Inc. It's headquartered in Harrison, New York. PepsiCo is an American multinational food, snack, and beverage corporation with 23 brands. And of course, we have all consumed probably all 23 in the last couple of weeks. In addition to serving as the Senior Director of Consumer Insights for Gatorade, Doug has worked across PepsiCo in a number of their key divisions, including breakfast, multicultural consumer insights and strategy, innovation architecture, and healthy mornings. Doug, welcome to the Happy Market Research Podcast. Jamin, thank you for having me. I am uh, super stoked to be here. I'm an insights lifer since day one of graduating undergrad. I, I have been in the field, so I love talking the work and uh, the projects and, and all sorts of stuff. So really honored to be here. Thank you. You have a depth of expertise given your tenure in the space and the you know companies that you've worked with and served. Today, we're going to be talking specifically around package testing. This particular interview is being done in, uh, really around the work of explaining to consumer insights professionals some of the core methodologies that we employ as researchers in the space. And so I'm, I'm very appreciative of you being willing to take the time to talk with us today about this. So really the, the first question I have for you is what business questions does package testing address? Packaging testing, it's addressing every business question that we have, right? It runs the full gamut. You start at the highest level possible, right? What's our most important business question? How do we sell more stuff faster? right? It happens at the shelf. It happens wherever your product is, wherever consumers are making that choice to pick up your product, right? You have to understand that your product is being seen, getting the correct message across, connecting with consumers at the right place at the right time to make the right choice for you and for your brand. But of course, it's also brand equity, right? Like oftentimes I'll talk with people and, and equity is seen as a, something that's more consumer experience and how we reach out to consumers through media. But the reality is the vast majority of consumers, their deepest experiences with our product are, are with the product itself. Right. And so how we show up at shelf, how we show up, not just at shelf, but within people's homes. This isn't just about being in store. It's that experience of how your brand comes to life in store, in the home, on the way home, whether it's on the go, all of these different factors. And so, you know, it's I'll be honest with you that this was the question that I had the toughest time with because it's. The easy thing to say is like, oh, every question, but there's so much in there because there's there's small details of which attributes are going to drive the product choice the most to what's the color scheme that's going to make people feel the correct emotions to put it in the right occasion base that you need the product to be. There's such a wide range from very tactical to super high level important driving sales metrics that that we all can get through packaging testing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm a little bit embarrassed. I'm not going to lie. I had <laughs> sort of pigeonholed this. I mean, I'm a career market researcher with a, over a couple of decades and I've done a lot of package testing. I don't think I've ever had it extend beyond the actual like package in context of the shelf set. But you're right. Like, is it the seasoning I grab when I'm going for the pepper? You know what I mean? Or totally. It, 
yeah, the, the, the context of packaging is, is much broader than I was actually thinking of it. Yeah. You, I mean, you can think of it. A very good example, I think, is mass retailers or, you know, Costco, Sam's Club, those sorts of things. The packaging has to be a little bit different, right? Like people are buying in bulk in ways that they're not used to storing at home. Obviously, over the decades, people have become more used to it. But how do you design the right package? If, if you're selling a five pound bag of oats, right? What's the right way that someone can put that in their shelf, have easy access to it when they get home? And maybe you design it in a way that it's almost like a centerpiece, right? Like there's different brands out there that can create products where there's a lot of badge value to it, where it's like, I actually leave this out on my counter. You know, if you're an olive oil brand, how do you create a bottle and a label and a package design that you are super comfortable just leaving next to your stove as a way to show that you know, your culinary expertise, not just to be handy there, right? Yeah, that's so, was it Pepsi? And remind me, if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll, I'll erase this question. But, but was it Pepsi that discovered that consumers that were shopping at big box would buy, you know, their big 32 ounce or whatever it is, massive amount of soda and take it home, stick it in the garage, but then they wouldn't, because it wouldn't fit in the refrigerator, they, they wouldn't actually take it to the, you know, they wouldn't actually consume it. Hmm. So it actually ended up being a barrier to purchase. And that's where the innovation happened around the refrigerator friendly distribution holder for soda. I mean, it, so I don't, I don't know if that came through PepsiCo. I hope so. I, I hope it was uh, smart insights uh, peers that I work with, but, but either way, I mean, it, it's such an incredible example, right? Is, you know, consumers want to buy things in bulk is, you know, things that they like, obviously, but you know, we're not a written, that's not the way we designed things, but if you want people to run through it, it can't just be, okay, we created a giant pile of cans and you're going to have to put it in your garage in a place that you don't usually walk to when you're thirsty. Like, how do you make sure that the packaging, like I said before, the right place at the right time, when consumers are thirsty, you need to be there. You don't, mm. you know, if you're going to force them to walk 30 feet. And I know that doesn't seem like much. I know it doesn't, but there's a football game on. I don't want to walk away too far. I just want to have this easy access to it. And those are the small things that over time they add up, right? Even if it's just one or two occasions a week where someone isn't choosing to go get your product. Well, that's a shorter, that's a longer amount of time until the next time that they need to go buy again, your purchase cycles get longer, your sales get slower, right? And so all these things factor in. I think you just invented the next big thing, the lazy boy with a beer tap. I'm pretty sure somebody's done it. I, 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 I pretty like I. We were in the market for couches a couple months ago, and I, I'm there were ones with coolers. It didn't have a beer tap in it, but there was definitely coolers in the armrest. What common analytic techniques are used? A lot of it, you know, analytic techniques versus you know broad methodologies. I, you know, it's nothing wildly complex, right? It's is your standard A B testing uh, a lot of the times. It's looking at norms. I think the the biggest factor analytically is doing driver analyses to understand that what you're testing is really impacting the goal of what you're doing, right? Because one of the things is, as we talked about already, packaging testing is so big and there's so much you can test. When you do a quantitative study, there are so many diagnostics. There, there's so many different things that you can look at, attributes, emotions, and the way people feel. And it can be so easy to get caught up in it. 
right? That the data is pushing you in specific directions and somebody sees something fascinating. It's like, oh, well, this data point says that consumers find this package the most exciting. And you're like, okay, but why, why do you care about that suddenly? You know what I mean? And so I, I say all that to emphasize that, you know, a lot of the analytic techniques is, well, let's understand the drivers of impact. And when I say impact, the first thing you have to know in doing any packaging research, and this is obvious likely to everyone listening to the podcast, but maybe there are some new people in, maybe there are uh, some fresh faces in the, in the insights world, but make sure you understand the objective. Make sure mm. you know what the brief is, because when you're working with you know, creative people who do a lot of packaging design work, they can be so like excited by information, right? And they can be all over. And like I said, you share with them a big, you know, uh, amount of information and they're like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? But the key is if you're there to drive visibility on the product, find out how you do that. What are the diagnostics? What are the analytics, the correlation models that you have to do and make sure they're linked to the thing that you're trying to do most. It, it, again, it can be so easy to fall into just exploring the data and getting excited, but it could turn out that that label that makes consumers more excited also has less visibility, right? Because there's something mm -hmm. about it that like, excites their brain when when they look at it but it actually it wasn't something they looked at when it was on the shelf and so you know really push your team into making sure that you're focused on well okay these are the things that drive it that excitement was a diagnostic one thing we might have learned actually is that if our key lever here that we're trying to pull is on visibility at shelf excitement isn't a key thing that's going to drive it, right? So that's going to become uh, less important to us. And I, and I do think too, that's an, that's an area that allows insights to become more consultative. A, a big passion point that I have in the function and, and in the industry is, is, right, we're not report delivery people. We're not here to just express the numbers as they were, they were found within the report. And those are the opportunities to say, hey, no, no, our strategy is X. Our strategy is visibility or our strategy is we are trying to drive a specific brand equity or, or you know, something about our business. And we have a lot of other metrics in this study because we want to understand the diagnostics of how we got there, but we can't let it take us off course. And that's where we can really be strategic leaders within the business to, to keep us focused on ultimately what the goal was. Got it. When you think about, so obviously correlation driver analysis, as you articulated, is, is kind of a staple there. What about qualitative research? Does it play a role? For sure. For sure. I, I love qualitative research. I think qualitative research gets a bad rap. The reason I think qualitative research can get a bad rap is because oftentimes people do bad qualitative research. <laughs> um, and, you know, absolutely just understand what it's for. I've, I've, been a part of projects where qualitative research was used to make decisions that it shouldn't have been made, right? The qualitative research shouldn't be viewed as we're going to take in three ideas and, you know, these 30 consumers are going to tell us which one is best, right? Qualitative right. research is at its best when it's helping us understand why. And when it's helping us humanize the information that, that we're starting to learn. Because again, when, when we're dealing with package design and, and creative areas, 
you you have to be able to inspire your peers and your and the people you're working with and oftentimes just data doesn't do it right and so you dig deep you show these human responses and it's like hey we didn't understand why excitement wouldn't improve visibility but then we did this qualitative research and what we found was the thing that made it exciting also made it unlike the rest of the category and as we know through a lot of research techniques that we do is while while disruption is important you can go too far right where it's if you're not cueing the basics of the category itself my subconscious brain isn't even considering you right and so yeah and so you can do qualitative research and understand it's like yep consumers were excited about it but when they stood at the shelf they didn't even think it was a product in our category and and those are that's the type of richness that qualitative research can really bring and it helps you you know, really understand the why and the why is so crucial because that's not a lesson just for the project today. That's a lesson you carry with you. That's the next packaging project you do. You're like, you know what? We learned this lesson because we understood what was driving X, Y, or Z. Completely agree. You know, qualitative is, as you articulated it, exactly for discovery and uncovering the the why, but it should never be used to extrapolate a point of view or projection of, of a macro audience. Just it just doesn't have that level of scalability. Yeah, and and I think you know oftentimes too, you know, one of my pet peeves with qualitative research, particularly with design, is, and and, and believe me, I understand the 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 want to ask this sort of question, but like you put up a package that's yellow and consumers aren't responding to it, and it's like, well, what if it was blue? And it's like, wait, well, what if it was blue? What would you think? And then they'll say like, I don't know, I think I like blue. I think I'd like it better. And then even if you say to yourself, I'm not going to let that color how I write the report or the decisions we make, that information's out there. And somebody has heard the consumer say that now, and they might not be as skilled as you are knowing how to take stuff out of there. So simply by asking the question poorly, you've put bad data out into the ether and it can be it can be super harmful and so that's where you know with with packaging qualitative it's so great just make sure you have stimulus like consumers respond to stimulus they don't respond to philosophy um they'll give you philosophy but it's you know as as you well know you know an expert in the qualitative field yourself like just how you know, a lot of qualitative is about rationalization and it's just so yeah. crucial to be able to read consumers and understand what they're really saying, not what they're literally saying. Wow, that's that's so great. And then to your point, and I've actually never heard anybody, you know, I've only done about 500 of these. I've never heard anybody <laughs> articulate it exactly like you did. And I think it's important to note, and that is that like when you dis- when you have data, especially qualitative data, and, and as a moderator, you're, you're leading, you know, you're standing down at the end of a hall with lots of doors, right? And you have to pick which doors you go, go through. Each one of those doors has some level of potential harm it can do in, in addition yeah. to insight. And you have to be really mindful that your, your, your sponsor, your customer, your, whether it's a stakeholder or a client, you know, if you're an agency, they, they're going to listen to that. And, and there's this confirmation bias that can take place. And, and somebody can latch on to a point that really isn't a point. Your blue example, I think, is perfect. Um, and then that can start creating a real direction that m- 
may not ever may not be accurate uh, by a long shot. And, and so we, t- we have to be mindful of that, like almost like the do no harm when we're thinking about qualitative research. Uh, absolutely. I'll give you one other <clears throat> quick example that's from a, a product testing perspective, right? And um, I was I was talking with someone internally about this actually. And it's like, if you're doing just some really quick kind of product sampling and you want to get, you know, consumer response, uh, you know, we we were talking with some some folks who were asking the question, well, what did you think about the aftertaste? And then, you know, suddenly people were like, yeah, you know what, that aftertaste, I don't know, I, I don't love it. And, and the reality is aftertaste itself has a negative connotation, simply the yeah. word. And nobody's like, oh, what a great aftertaste. And so here's <laughs> here's a group of people who told us they liked the product. Now, suddenly you're asking them about aftertaste and they're like, yeah, I don't know. That is interesting. Maybe, yeah, I don't love that aftertaste. And now suddenly what went from a, we just tested this with consumers and they liked it well enough. We can feel good at going forward. Now product developers are like, oh man, I really need to work on this aftertaste. When the reality is they, we put that in the consumer's head. Yeah. yeah. Saying, he wouldn't have said that. it. Yeah. We're bad. Yeah. And so now, now, now there's a whole work stream. There's resources yes. being put toward it and it's all because we, we incepted it in them. Yeah, that's right. That's so interesting. All right. So common research operations, I'm a operations guy. What are some common research operations that need to be taken into consideration when you do package testing? Yeah, you know, try, try and stay away from philosophy. The other like, and this is more of a be careful of rather than must do. But when you get to quantitative testing, make sure that your samples, A, your sample size is big enough, but sometimes we can get caught up in our design target segment. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, well, we really want to make sure this works among our core consumers. And it's like, well, yes, of, of course we do. But also it has to sell millions of dollars worth of stuff among not these people. Right. And so making sure that your sample is representative of the category, um, maybe even bigger. Like if your goal is that part of your package design is going to bring in people from outside the category to increase category penetration, you think perhaps your product design is breaking down a barrier for that's keeping people from entering you better make sure those people are in the sample, right? That you have a broad enough group of non-buyers of your category to to be able to account for that. I know it seems like a very simple thing, but I, but I do think especially in, you know, because research has evolved so much in the past couple of decades and we, we are able to do things so fast now and it's so great, but Oftentimes, really fast studies or small sample sizes, they're very specific questions that we're trying to answer. One big passion point that I have operationally is if you're if you're doing a quantitative study, particularly if you're doing like a shelf set study, like in our case, you know, we'll, we'll do a lot of, think of how you can make it bigger, not smaller, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason I do this is, is because there's always a question that we wish we would have answered, right? Like I, we, we shouldn't design our research to answer the very specific question that we have today. What if we can design our research so that we can answer a question we didn't know that we had and, and it comes up two months later? An example of this might be, well, hey, did you look at Hispanic consumers? It's like, well, no, that wasn't a problem to solve with the original brief. And it's like, well, now we're so now we can do another study later, or the original study could have been, you know, more broad in scope to be able to right. in, 
to be able to include some potential cohorts that we know are important to our business, et cetera. So just a big operational thing there, making sure, I guess to me, the biggest thing is the brief. Like, like I said before, it's know the brief and use that as your guide for every decision that you're making. And just make sure that it's like, look, these are the things that we as a business align to. Now we're going to design work that ensures that we're measuring the impact of these things. Sometimes mm-hmm. that means the study is going to be a little bigger. Sometimes that means the study is going to be smaller. Sometimes it's going to be more qualitative focused. But in the end, and because it, it's an area where we can get tripped up, right? Because like I said, mm-hmm. like projects can go so many different ways. And where I think we can really be kind of the light in the darkness is reminding people, hey, this is the way, this is what we're mm-hmm. we're focused on. I've been on so many projects where you know, they started to go off the rails a little bit and you can steer them back by just saying, Hey, remember, this is the thing that we're focused on. And so that's, that should guide, you know, every decision you're making methodologically operationally. I really like that. I started a discipline about five years ago where I write the objective at the top of every document. Oh, I love Uh, it. Every instrument or discussion guide or report or whatever, just to kind of keep me grounded because it's so easy to, to veer off because data is so interesting. Yeah. No, no, totally. Like, I mean, believe, did you know, we, we're the biggest, you know, nerds of them all, the, you know, us who live in this every day, but then, you know, like I said, even, you know, design or creative folks who generally speaking, don't love data telling them what to do. They get excited right. when they see data and, and, yeah. and they like to, you know, play around. And so it's like, how do you make sure you're giving folks the best guidance possible? And, and I love that idea of like, it starts with you, right? Yeah. You have to remind yeah. yourself of that too. Let's talk about your favorite project. So do you have a recent or like anchor Point project that can you think about is that was that was really good yeah i you know it's funny i have a couple um and i have one that that's uh, a bit of a success story and one that 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 kind of isn't and actually gets back to the brief thing and i, I can tell them both or one or the other or yeah, both. whatever you think i'll i'll that's start great. with the one that was <clears throat> a little bit of a, a lesson learned on mine and this was uh, i was working for a uh, pasta and sauce company based out of Italy. And, you know, our sauce business wasn't performing as well as we wanted to. And so we really wanted to grow our sauce business. And so we started from scratch, the foundations, and we wanted to understand consumer perceptions, what drove choice in the category. So we spent a lot of time in the upfront qualitatively. Well, what are those images? What are the emotions associated with people purchasing pasta sauce, right? And, you know, a lot of it isn't, you know, I, I, I can't give away, obviously, uh, information that, that was company owned, but I don't think anybody's surprised, but like in America, the types of emotions and feelings that they get around Italian food, there's certainly some nostalgia there. And then we took that, worked with our designers and went through a phase of a bit more quantitative testing, different options. What about this? What about this? You know, you, we start with you know, a bunch of different designs and, you know, we quantitatively test them. And then we did some more qual to understand, okay, why are we seeing these differences? And it really brought it to life. And in the end, we we had a package that we did final confirmation testing and it performed as well as this supplier that we used, who was a perception research services at the time, now known as a behaviorally, um, mm. you know, it, it 
through the roof. Like, wow, like this is in the top like 5% of things tested. And we showed it to leadership and leadership said, this looks exactly what like, like what an American would think Italian food looks like. And mm. we're like, yes, that is exactly what it is. And they said, that's not what we want. We want, we want to change American perception of Italian food. We want to bring a, a more uh, modern and sleek and streamlined approach, a more gastro approach to Italian foods that we view Italian food ourselves to be. And it, wow. you know, it was a big lesson in my life, again, of getting to that, like, we didn't understand the brief well enough. Because right. we designed what we th what we thought and what we tested to be what would be the best selling product possible. I mean, just updating packaging, right? And that wasn't right. That was that wasn't the business strategy. And so it's like, hey, like that's where you really have to lean into. You know, um, it was a great project. I learned a ton. Where I've worked with some incredible partners, and they went a different direction. That's okay. That's okay. Lesson learned, and the the sauce is still on the shelf. So it, it's worked out for them. So the other example I'll give is Life Cereal. When when I was on the Quaker business, we again did a deep dive. Like Life Cereal is one of those brands that like a lot of people love and they couldn't really remember why, right? There was a lot of latent emotion. One of my favorite companies to work with on uh, these upfront, is it okay to talk about, you, you had mentioned uh, mentioning companies. So I believe yeah, no, okay. you, you can feel free to mention whomever you want. That, that's, I love my Life Cereal. I'm a huge fan, by the way. <laughs> Um, uh, at least ask, I, I don't actually eat it, consume it, but I don't even know if it's around anymore, but the Mikey commercials are so, <laughs> so like just, you know, right in the front of my head. As soon as you say life cereal, I'm like Mikey. Well, it, it, see, that's it. And, and that's the thing like, to your point of like, I don't remember the last time I ate it. Life cereal is one of those brands that like, it's people love it. And it like the sales numbers aren't through the roof, but like it has a strong, steady performance. But, but considering how like the positive emotions people have for life, you sit there and wonder well, what, what's, what's going on? What's the issue? So one of the, so we started a, again, a, a big project, right? Where, you know, again, we started qualitatively and we started work uh, with this company called Triggers. Uh, they're mm -hmm. based out of New York. Leslie Zane uh, founded it. It, one of the my favorite companies in the world to work with i'll be honest with you because yeah. she is brilliant their whole company is brilliant her and christy both and you know they do a lot of like psychology it's like big qualitative and it's really understanding the subconscious brain so among people mm -hmm. who love your brand what is it visually what is it emotionally about your brand that makes people love it and then among people who don't love it what are the subconscious associations with, with your brand that they have that's keeping them from buying it, right? They're using your competitors. And so you can actually map out brains, right? So you, you, you create this mind map of like your brand lovers and this mind map of your competitive users. And you can see, well, what are the things I need to emphasize? What are the things I need to drive? One of the things we found is that, you know, Life Cereal didn't have a bowl of cereal on the on the front for a long time. It had people on it. It had pictures of people. And one of the exercises we had people do was, hey, draw the Life Cereal box. And people were drawing a box that we hadn't had in 10 years, right? Like that's just latent equity we're sort of leaving on the table. And so yeah. we learned a lot about 
life cereal, its connection to fun and playfulness and youth, even though it's not a kid's cereal per se, kids eat it and enjoy it, but it, it is a family cereal. It's for adults as well. And so we really did this deep work with uh, the Triggers team. We moved on to a phase where we started quantitatively testing a number of different elements. Uh, at the time, we used uh, Basie's, uh, one of their packaging testing options to look at like a wide range of the different variables. What's driving what? Is it? Do we make it more cartoony? Do you show real food? Do you, how do you bring it to life? Testing all sorts of different options. It's so exciting because... The richness that you get when you can test, you know, eight different design territories, right? And those territories were all based on the same brief, but it's like you can really start like big and you start to see what are the things that are working? What are the things that are not? What are the things we can add on to each other? And which can't we, right? You can't just Frankenstein all the good stuff into an, an incredible package. And so... um to, to try and short wind this story a little bit, you know, being, you know, we, we did that through a couple of phases and then ultimately got to a couple designs, which we then tested in a bigger shelf set, full confirmation type, looking at category users, trying to, you know, measure impact and influence. And that was one where there was a lot of compromise, where, you know, some of the things that we found, the marketing team wasn't as into. Um, and, but we were able to influence enough that, you know, and, and through the research show that, you know, this is the direction Life Serial has so many latent brand equities. And even though as like from a creative team, you know, people want to bring new stuff, right? I, something I often hear in packaging refresh, which, which I got to, I got to say is another pet peeve of mine. I'm just full of them. But when they say like, I want to modernize the brand, I want to really bring it, modernize things. And it's like, it's not always necessary. You know, what's modern is making people love your, like people love your brand. And if you have this latent sort of nostalgic connection to them, why fight it? And so we were able to bring some of those emotions that evoked nostalgia and connection in a way that felt fresh new to life, much more colorful than what we had done before, a good balance of the playfulness of the kids with making sure adults saw the healthfulness. And then obviously the flavor of, you know, the great tasting bowl of cereal coming through too. It was an awesome project that took us about eight months, but, you know, everyone involved, just a huge, incredible impact. I'm definitely buying some on my next Costco. It's still uh, delicious. Yeah, no, I, it's funny. <laughs> you know, and, and it's it's interesting how big of a lever packaging really is relative to the product inside of it, right? I, oh, I, sure. There's a yogurt company. I, I started my career at a company called Macro Consulting out of Palo Alto and California. And we did a ton of package testing from everything from wine to a bunch of work with Pepsi, actually. One of the customers was a yogurt company based out of Toronto. They had in their logo, they had a leaf and the leaf was green. They were having a hard time selling it, even though they're like taste tests and everything else seemed very, very positive. So we did some package testing just in the logo uh, component. And it turned it from a, a green to a like a almost like a candy cherry color. Hmm. And it, they just couldn't keep it on the shelves. It like the business just quite literally blew up over just the, the color and the connotation that the consumers were making relative to the taste of the yogurt based on that, that simple change. So it's, it is funny how you can do those little things and they can have such a massive impact on sales. 
Yeah, uh, the the semiotics, it's it's both like one of the most interesting things and one of the most impactful mm-hmm. things, you know? And it, like one of the things that we know from Gatorade is like if you put an orange cap on on a on a bottle, boom, Gatorade, Gatorade in their mind and not just brand Gatorade, but refreshment. Right. right. Like all sorts of positive emotions associated that, that you want to be associated with in moments of thirst come right to mind through that simple interaction with color. And, and you're, you're so right that it, it's not something that, that should be taken lightly. And, you know, every food or, or every color has a different impact on the human brain. Like, you know, it, this, this evolutionary thing impacts us all, you know, like there's no such thing as blue food in the wild. And so blue food packaging can be difficult, right? And so, because our non-conscious brain wants to push against it and there's all sorts of like incredible learnings out there that they're both exciting. And then, like you said, drive sales impact, right? You, If you make people hungry at the shelf, if you make their subconscious mind suddenly hungry, they're going to pick up what yeah, you got. You're, you're winning for sure. Budget. So if, you know, thinking about like young brands or even like in startups or people that are just entering into the space, what do you usually think of in terms of an acceptable kind of low to high cost basis for conducting package testing? Yeah. So you can do a lot inexpensively now right? You know, the agile nature of research and the tools available to us digitally, you can do a lot on the cheap, you know, really well. Um, So, I mean, you're talking, you can do, I want to A, B test a couple of different labels to see their impact against each other for, you know, $5,000, right? If we're talking the kind of projects that we talked before of like, no, I want to understand the landscape, like, in you know in in a world of unlimited budget let's just say you do this project of a i'm launching into a category i've never been in before so i don't understand any of the cues or triggers within said category so i have to start from the basics like you know what drives choice in this category and then what are the images associated with that conscious and subconscious that i need to focus on and then from there i start going into packaging design like well or you know how do we take what we learned from that semiotics phase and now apply it to test designs built upon the brief, right? Because the semiotic phase should help us feed the brief. Now we know the brief. We know we want to launch. We want to do X, Y, Z. You know, maybe you're starting with eight to 10 different concept designs. You want to do a qualitative piece. You want to do a quantitative piece to start whittling that down. Long story short, it can be very easy to get up to $500,000, right? And that's doing things, I'd say, the gold standard way, or maybe even platinum way, a lot of people would say, where you're really putting everything into really understanding the work. I, I will say some of that foundational stuff is repeatable. Right. So you're, you're launching a product now. You're not right. going to have to go back and really understand the semiotics of the category again the next time you go in. And so it's kind of a cost that, that you right. can spread out over time. But yeah. And, and of yeah. course, you, there's a million things in between. I, I guess what I'd emphasize is just know that, you know, for every, everything's probabilistic. None of us can predict the future. If you spend the least amount of money to understand one thing on your package, you know, the the margin of error will be higher, right? And so if you are comfortable with that, if, you're, if the risk management of your company and yourself and the decision that you're trying to make allows you 
to do something. Hey, I just need to know, should it be this image or this image before we go to print in two weeks? Great. You can do something really inexpensive there and still impact the business, right? Because those two images are going to drive consumer interest. But then you can go all the way to, well, no, I really need to know, you know, I'm a multi-billion dollar brand and I'm changing my packaging. You better be sure that the change in packaging isn't going to turn off people who are already using people. You know, I think oftentimes there's an assumption that when I change package, I'm going to keep the people who already buy me. And it's like, well, the people who buy you are doing so thoughtlessly often at the shelf based on cues that they've trained themselves to. Are you sure you're maintaining those cues? The next time they're at the shelf, are they going to see that orange cap that helps them just know immediately that's Gatorade, that's where I want to go? It's really a matter, like I said, it's a matter of risk management. What what are you putting on the table? What are you comfortable with? To your point, like I hadn't thought of it exactly like this, but it really is like the size of the tail needs to be proportional to the dog, right? So, yeah. So like, you know, a bad outcome. (laughs) I'm wrong. What's the actual like down chain impact? All right. The next question I have for you is like thinking about time. I, I realize it's probably relative to the to the budget framework, but like, what do you think of in a typical project? How much time should a company allocate for that? Yeah. I mean, I I think the time and the budget question are so uh, strongly correlated to each other because, and and it's the same thing of risk management. Look, if you want to do things fast, great. You know, you can do things fast. You can make an AB decision, frankly, in less than a week nowadays, right? Right. You know, it's it's something we did for an energy drink that we're going to be launching next year. We just had a question about wording on the package. And so we went into our Zappy platform. We did a very quick packaging test. We got the results in less than 48 hours and we were able to confirm, oh, this is the right wording that we want to have on our product, right? But if you're talking about, hey, we need to improve visibility at the shelf a great deal. Consumers aren't even seeing us at shelf. Okay, well, commit to at least six months, right? Because you you have to you have to understand the real problem, right? Like, well, what's driving that inability to find us? And then once you understand that, then you can start designing and solving for it, right? Because if you already knew how to fix it, you just fix it, right? And so the research phase should just help us. Like, there's a couple different ways we can go in. Let's find out the best way. And, you know, in six months, hopefully you have a pretty strong idea. It can take up upwards of a year. Again, it depends on, I I think the year long packaging Mm -hmm. stuff is either like you are totally reframing a classic brand and you need to make sure every single I is dotted, right? And, And you're really being tight on everything. Or like I said, you're entering a brand new category and there's just so much to learn. And may, and, Sometimes you make mistakes along the way. Sometimes like you really lean into a design territory and then you find out it's like, ah, this isn't work. This isn't doing what we need it to do. And you have to adjust for it. So it's, if all things go really well, six months, great. But, you know, very rare that that happens. Yeah. Two more questions. DIY and partners are the two questions. So you already mentioned Zappy Store as a DIY solution. Are there any other solutions that you're aware of that companies may be able to employ to uh, conduct their own package testing in-house? Well, would Vox Potme be a company that has uh, availabilities to be able to do things? It is um, self-serving, but I do appreciate you that. Know, on, on, 
<laughs> no, 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 it is. I, know, I, 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 we've had a part, uh, we've done some work internally within PepsiCo. It's, it's a great system. Uh, uh, yeah, we've used it, I think for packaging design and for some messaging and it's, a, it's been a great tool for us, but in terms of like in-house, I'll say internally, we really lean into Zappy because within PepsiCo, we have an mm -hmm. incredible partnership with them that they're really driving like a yeah. global agenda with us. I'll say, you know, a, a couple of the other companies that, you know, I mentioned, uh, behaviorally and triggers, I, I think super highly of, but yeah, I, I'm also, you know, a lot of this work, if you stick to behaviorally is going to be great because they're going to have the norms, right? And so if you really want to understand the impact that you're having against the marketplace compared to what other things are doing, behaviorally is going to have those metrics and they have a couple of different levels of methodology yeah. that you can choose. Triggers is incredible because like, uh, it's like I tell Leslie, every time I work with her, I, I feel smarter and not just like smarter for smarter's sake. Like I'm a better business person. I understand human emotion and behavior and how those things are connected. And, you know, it's not just about cool insights. It's about this is how you grow the dang business. And this is how you go at your competitors. And it's, it's really great stuff that sets foundations. Basies, like I said, too, they have a packaging testing system that, that we used previously to help us whittle down concepts. A good, it's a good balance of budget where you can test at a shelf, multiple different concepts to understand, you know, which of the design territories is working best for us. And we've had a lot of success with them. Of course, Basies is foundational to the industry as well. They are. And I think a lot of people think of them as, you know, concept testing, which they are, yeah. right? They're, 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 you know, nobody has the database. They have concept testing, but, you know, we use, we've used them for a number of different studies, like I said, packaging studies, LPOs, they do a lot of great work. Our guest today has been Doug Healy, Senior Director of Consumer Insights at Gatorade at PepsiCo. Doug, thank you very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. It has been awesome. I love it. And thank you for having me. Huge honor. Everybody, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.